Welcome to Jedi Master's Degree. I'm Biggs. Before we start anything else, I want to remind you guys we have an email address. It's JediMastersDegree at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Instagram with NSF underscore network and on Facebook if you like the Not Safe for Network page. Today we're going to cover the Han Solo adventures. They were written by Brian Daly. His first two books were science fiction hits, so Ballantine's editor, Owen Locke, who had also discovered him, thought he would be perfect to write more Star Wars books. Daly was asked to pick a Star Wars character to write about, and he chose Han Solo because he felt it was the only character who made a moral decision. The first two books were released after the holiday special, but before Empire Strikes Back. Han Solo at Star's End came out April 12, 1979. Han Solo's Revenge, September 12th of the same year, and Han Solo and the Lost Legacy was released in August of 1980, right after Empire Strikes Back hit the theaters. Daily only had A New Hope, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the Star Wars Holiday Special, and some Marvel comics to go off of. George Lucas would not share anything of future movies with Ballantine. That spurned Daly's decision to set the book in Han's past so it wouldn't interfere with future storylines, which is partly what makes him a great person to jump onto a big franchise like this because he understands continuity is important. And speaking of how this is Han's backstory, these books are set in 2 BBY to 1 BBY. If you recall, ABY means after the Battle of Yevon, which was when they blew up the Death Star. BBY means before the Battle of Yevon. So this is essentially two to one years before the Death Star blew up. And by the way, Brian Daly, will get a little bit more backstory on him when we do episode 13, Rebel Mission to Ord Mandel, which is a radio drama that he wrote. And one other thing you need to know about these books is that they take place around the corporate sector, which is on the edge of the galaxy. The Empire doesn't care about the area, so they operate independent of it. So that is our setting. Let's get going. So first, we're going to talk about Han Solo at Star's End. When we talk about the other books, we'll probably rifle through those a little bit quicker because we got a lot of ground to cover today. So Han Solo and Chewbacca come from the corporate sector to make a fortune based on the word of a loan shark named Pluvo 2 for 1. It's it's an unusual name. It's actually a pretty fortunate name if you think about it. Pluvo 2 for 1, it's like, hey, do a loan through me, I can save you some money. So it's a fortunate name, you know. I, I wonder if he was born with it. Probably not. They start by doing what anyone would do when they need money, smuggling weapons. However, the corporate sector authority makes it difficult for any ship to operate that does not belong to the corporate sector. So they find themselves broke, owing Java, I mean uh, Pluvo, and awaiting a job. Here's a little segment from the book. I picked out a couple to read. I could always hit the beach, he thought. Find a nice planet somewhere, go native. It's a big galaxy. But he shook his head. No use fooling himself. If he were grounded, he might as well be dead. What could one planet, any planet, offer someone who had knocked around the stars? The need for the boundless provinces of space was now a part of him. So this really describes his thirst for adventure. Of course, as you know, there are always two paths for being the main character in an adventure story. This is the first. The second is being dragged into it. Han always manages that as well. Han and Chewie deliver weapons to an alien that has a globular torso, short arms, and legs that have more joints than Tommy Chong at Burning Man. The alien remarks to Han after he delivers him guns, We came here because they promised us jobs and a good life, and we celebrated our good fortune for our world is poor. But they worked us like slaves and would not let us leave. Many of us escaped into the wilds. This world is not unlike our own. Now with these weapons, we'll be able to fight back. Stop, Han snarled with a slashing gesture of his hand in a violence that made the creature recoil. 
Raining in his temper, he went on. I don't want to hear it. You get me? I don't know you. You don't know me. It's none of my business, so don't tell me. This is very similar, of course, to A New Hope. There's a cruel government, a rebel who's fighting back, and Han wants no part of it. He just wants to get paid. Han thrusts aside the thought of what life must be like in a forced labor camp, a driven, joyless existence if there ever was one. That was a common pattern in the corporate sector. Naive outworlders lured by false promises, signing on to become prisoners once they reach the compounds. And what could these few fugitives hope to accomplish? The luck of the draw, he reminded himself. Hits off from the cosmic deck didn't always make things right, but right wouldn't fill an egg timer on tattooing. You played the cards you got, and Han Solo liked to be on that end of things with the largest profit margin. So this is basically just Han shrugging his shoulders again about how the world works. He looks out for himself and makes sure he makes a profit. Also, why does that egg timer have to be on Tatooine? Wouldn't that analogy work if it was on Hoth or a Star Destroyer or Jar Jar Banks' tongue? Is there a particular reason it needs to be on Tatooine? Anyway, so Chewie gives Han a hard look, and so Han starts mansplaining to the alien how he must rebel. What you do is... You lock all your carbines on a single shot, and if you get into a firefight in the night or in a deep jungle where visibility is poor, shoot at the constant fire sources. You know it's none of your people, so it must be security police. So this is basically him describing Vietnam. Daly was a veteran, it's worth knowing. So once again, Vietnam, important to Star Wars. Politics are always an integral part of Star Wars. From the very beginning, it was baked in, even in the EU. Chewbacca and his non-furry friend hyper-jump to Eddie Ford to pay off Pluvo. They stop in an exotic pet shop. The shopkeeper mistakenly thinks that Han is trying to sell Chewbacca because, seriously, this guy was modeled off of George Lucas's dog, Indiana. No, seriously, Chewbacca was made to look like his dog. And he named Indiana Jones after his dog. And then he had that line in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade where Sean Connery shouts, We named the dog Indiana! To which Ford says, I have fond memories of that dog. Harrison Ford owes all the highs of his career to that dog. We're talking Star Wars and four Indiana Jones movies. Well, maybe Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls in a highlight, but you get the point. The shopkeeper refuses to buy George Lucas's dog since owning Wookiees is illegal. Han calms him down and says that they want to buy a dinko, which is a small, ornery, bug-like creature. Han meets up with Pluvo and the authorities' security police are seeking him out. Pluvo tells Han that since they're now square, he has no interest in protecting him. The police inform Han that his ship isn't allowed to fly within authority space unless it's added to a waivers list. The police leave and Han gives a box to Pluvo with his payment. Pluva opens the box up and the Dinko sinks its fangs into him with his money attached to his sharp feet. Pluvo's henchman then gets sprayed by its scent sack, which is just a great couple of words, scent sack, as they try to get the Dinko off of Pluvo. Han and Chewie steal the Falcon out of impoundment and they find some outlaws who work for a man named Doc. Han is trying to get a waiver to be able to fly in the Authority space again, as well as get the damage on his ship repaired. He finds out that Doc's daughter, Jessa, is now in charge. Doc, the living MacGuffin, has disappeared. Jessa tells Han that she'll give him a waiver and repair the Falcon and install some upgrades for free, as long as they help get some people off the agro world of Auron 3. Auron 3 is one of the Authority's data centers, and Han reluctantly agrees. I already know all about the morality, Jess. A friend of mine made a decision once, thought he was doing the moral thing. Hell he was. But he was conned. He lost his career, his girl, everything. 
This friend of mine, he ended up standing there while they ripped the Rankin insignia off his tunic. The people who didn't want him to be put up against a wall and shot were laughing at him. A whole planet. He shipped out there and never went back. She watched his face become ugly. Wouldn't anyone testify for your friend? She asked softly. He sniggered. His commanding officer committed perjury against him. There's only one witness in his defense, and who's going to believe a Wookiee? So this is Han's first real backstory in Star Wars. We're, of course, going to get a different one in Solo, a Star Wars story. That's not till season four of the podcast. So right now, it's the one we'll focus on. The Outlaw's base is suddenly attacked by some authority starfighters. Han's ship is getting the Falcon disguised for the break-in. So he, Jessa, and some other Outlaws jump into some headhunter ships. They have a battle reminiscent of the X-Wings battling the TIE Fighters in the Battle of Yavin, except Obi-Wan Kenobi is alive on Tatooine, so he's not really helping. Maybe he's busy trying to fill egg timers with Riot in his home on Tatooine, I don't know. They save the base, but lose three ships. They finish the new paint job on the Falcon and head for Oron 3. The Outlaws send two droids to help get into the Authority building. Their names are Bullocks, an old labor droid that has a hidden chamber in his chest, that fits another droid named Blue Max. Blue Max is a brand new computer probe. Together they fly into Oron 3 and get to know Recon. He is the leader of a group who are trying to liberate people who are detained for talking smack about the authority. Han, Chewie, Recon, and the droids go to the data center to get Han's waiver. Recon needs help to figure out who's a traitor in Jess's group, and since Han isn't really in the group, he's kind of perfect for the job. Han doesn't particularly care about any of this, so Reckon lectures him. A callous exterior isn't an uncommon way of protecting ideals, Captain. It hides the idealists from the derision of fools and cowards. But it also immobilizes them so that in trying to preserve their ideals, they risk losing them. They wind up finding a waiver and Blue Max impressively hacks into the mainframe without a drop of Mountain Dew, and then finds where the authority is hiding all the people. Torm, Atura, and Paka, members of Reckon's group, arrive looking for their missing loved ones. Atura lets everyone know that a member of their group named Engret has since been silenced. Blue Max copies the necessary data and lets everyone know that the security police are now after them. On Han's suggestion, Blue Max sets off alarms all over Orion 3 to distract the police from finding them. Eventually, they catch up to the group and there's blasters aplenty. Let me read this part from the book. He'd set his disruptor on overload and now the powerful handgun emptied itself in a brief flood of ruinous energy. Han had tried to shield his face from it, thinking what a chance Reckon was taking. The disruptor could have easily blown up in his hand, killing both men. This is pretty much a Star Trek thing. Seriously, they do this in the city of the edge of the forever to destroy a phaser? Just don't let anybody tell you the first time Star Trek and Star Wars crossover was J.J. Abrams. They steal a skimmer and get chased. They wind up crashing. Chewie runs with Blue Max and hooks him up into an agricultural droid called the Harvester. The police wind up capturing Chewbacca. Han is prevented going after Chewie by Reckon, who recognizes that Solo won't survive the attempt. Blue Max kills some troopers but can't help the Wookiee. The group jumps on the Harvester and goes after the Falcon. Blue Max sets the Harvester controls to create chaos and keep the police busy while they get into the large ship which has taken the Falcon and fly away. A Dreadnought locks a tractor beam onto their ship. Han dumps grade that he had aboard to blind the ship. Then he puts the ship in reverse causing it to hit the Dreadnought just before the impact he flies out the Falcon. He then jumps away into hyperspace. 
this is the Star Wars version of trailing gasoline out of a building and then flicking a cigarette onto it so that it explodes while you walk away in slow motion, by the way. When the stars had parted before him, the ship was safely in hyperspace. Han took a long minute thinking that he couldn't remember the last time he had spaced without a Wookiee beside him. Reckon had been right in arguing for escape, but that didn't change Han's feelings that he had let Chewbacca down. I mean, come on, what's a Han without a Chewie, right? Han finds that Reckon's been killed. He also finds that the data that Blue Max stole was placed on a disc that was melted. Han loses it because he had the information for where the detention center was located. Solo takes Torm, Atura, and Paka's weapons and threatens the three of them if they try anything. He then realizes that Reckon had written where the prison was on the hollow chessboard right before he died. It's at Star's End Midas 7. By the way, this is a lot of planets with numbers. It's like the second one. Seriously, this is more Star Trek-y than Star Wars-y. Han eventually figures out that Torm is a traitor. Torm tries to find a weapon but winds up being sucked out of an airlock alien style by Solo. There's no oxygen, heat, or spacesuit wrapped around him, so Dorm Pride dies from this. I just have a hunch. They get to Star's End and intercept a message that the Entertainers Guild is supposed to perform at the prison. They pretend to be circus performers and enter the prison. They find out that they're supposed to bring one half of a droid fight. Automated fighting is a combat at its purest, don't you agree? Herkin said chattily. No living creature, no matter how savage, is free of the taint of self-preservation. But Atama, ah... They are without regard for themselves, existing only to follow orders and destroy. This is pretty much reinforcing droids are a second-class citizen. And also, Atama? Come on, man. That's Star Trek. This is droids! Ah! Ultimately, Bullocks would be as good as C-3PO in a fight, so they're not so wild about getting into said fight. They pretend that Bullocks needs to be repaired before he can fight. Hurricane the Warden figures out that they are lying and throws Bullocks into a gladiator pit to be destroyed by a Mark X Executioner. Han manages to knock out a prison guard and sneak Blue Max into a computer area to find out where Chewie is. Then they set Star's End to self-destruct because of course a prison has a self-destruct option. Han then forces Hurricane to choose between releasing the prisoners who are frozen in stasis or have the prison blow up. Blue Max finds out about Bullocks having to fight the Mark X Executioner and refuses to finish Han's wishes until they rescue him. They go to the Gladiator Pit and find Bullocks losing to the Gladiator Droid. Blue Max tells Bullocks that the Mark X's weakness is that it tends to overheat. Bullocks tells him that 1 plus 1 equals 7 and its logic circuits fry and blow up. Just kidding, that's from Star Trek. It manages to destroy its cooling system and the droid runs amok until it self-destructs. Then Han Solo has to fight Hurkin's bodyguard. He checked his holster blaster by eye and saw that it was drained of all but a microcharge, not enough to damage the primary control circuitry. Uh, by the way, the electronics being charged seems to be a constant worry in the EU books of the 70s. It's probably because their Norelco razors couldn't hold the charge. Han tricks the bodyguard into wrecking a control panel which will self-destruct the prison. However, due to weird sci-fi reasons... The prison launches into space when it's supposed to explode. Han Bullocks and Blue Max free Chewbacca and Doc. Remember Doc? It's a story about Doc. Don't worry about it, he's just a MacGuffin. Doc manages to fix the now flying prison so that it won't crash back down to the planet. Just yet. The authorities somehow got more police on board. Han decides that they need to take Hurkin as a hostage to get away. They find Bullocks again and the droid saves Han from being hit by a disruptor. Solo and one of the ex-prisoners get the droid on board the Falcon. Hurkin tries to get Han to let him onto the ship, and he says, I had to look out for number one, Solo. 
It's a villain with Han's logic, right? It's a mere reflection of who Solo claims to be can't quite pull off. So obviously he's not going to take it very well. Hurkin is then shot by a prisoner. Starzan crashes back onto the planet while the Falcon gets away. Bullocks can't be salvaged, but the circuits that contain his mind are added to Blue Max. Doc says that he will build Bullocks a new body. Han gets irritated at Jessa because she's not interested in a relationship with Han, only in fulfilling the deal. She offers more upgrades to the Falcon if they will help her with another job. Chewbacca celebrates while Jessa and Han wind up relationshiping anyway. Alright, let's go to the second book, Han Solo's Revenge. Han and Chewie aren't having any luck with smuggling in the corporate sector. It's not because they blew up a jail, but maybe it should be? Anyway, they go to the planet of Kamar, showing documents on a hologram to the natives of the planets. I got word on the rumor vine that you were here, but I couldn't understand how in the name of the original light and the Wookiees you ended up showing hollow to Kamar Badlanders. Last I heard, you took some fire on the ramp of rapids. This is one of those cases where, uh, you know how Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher used to say to George Lucas, you can type it, but you can't say it? They should now expand that phrase to include Brian Daly. That is a hard thing to say. Let me try that one more time. I got word on the rumor vine that you were here, but I couldn't understand how in the name of original light you and the Wookiees end up showing up. God, it's so hard. One more time. I got word on the rumor vine that you were here, but I couldn't understand how in the name of original light you and the Wookiees ended up showing hollow to Kamar Badlanders. Last I heard, you took some fire on the ramp of rapids. Try saying that seven times fast. It proves profitable until they go to play a comedy and the natives flip out because they fashioned a religion off it. Seem weird? We're talking about a galaxy where in Return of the Jedi, the carnivorous Ewoks worship C-3PO as a god. So just go with it. They escape and find themselves completely broke. They take a job from a questionable contact, think exotic Joe in alien form. They go to a planet named Lure to pick up the cargo, which just happens to be slaves. Chewie doesn't have to convince Han this time that it's not okay to sell living beings. Plus, the slaver wasn't going to pay them. So it really wasn't a moral decision, it was more of a financial decision. The droids, who are now apparently fused together forever, even though Doc said he'd help them out, help Han and Chewie trick the slaver long enough to murder him. Then they set out to find out who was going to pay the slaver. They go to Bonadan, where Zlarb was supposed to have the payment. That's right, his name is Zlarb. They stop to have a couple of drinks with the last of their credits. So (laughs) here's a couple of things I really like from the book. He choked, snorted, and woofed mightily into his mug, while beer spume exploded outward. Spume is not a word you hear a lot. Anyway. Although they noted displeasure, patrons at nearby tables inspecting the Wookiee, noting his size and fierce fanged visage, refrained from complaining. No one is going to complain about a Wookiee tit's face. You know what I mean? Now here's something really interesting because you don't really hear about advertising very much in the Star Wars universe. You're just used to Star Wars stuff advertised to you. Han approaches bottle with less ardor. Not that he didn't like this wine. It was the intrusive nature of the over-civilized planet as reflected in the design of the bottle that he abhorred. He pressed hard on the cap seal with his thumb and the cap popped off. Once off, it was almost impossible to reaffix. Then came the part that Han really loathed. Breach of the cap triggered the release of a small energy charge. Light-emitting diodes manufactured into the bottle began a garish show. Figures and lettering marched around the bottle, extolling the virtues of its contents. The LEDs scintillated, giving what were intended to be winning statements about the wine's content, bouquet, and the high standards of personal hygiene embraced by the bottler's employers and automata. 
Consumer information appeared too, though in far smaller letters and less blinding hues. Ah, yes, this episode is unfolding exactly as I have foreseen. This is a perfect opportunity to talk about Keystone Light. When you're out with your bros trying to score, but all you can manage is to throw up your pepper jerky that you ate at the bar, make it a Keystone Light. Pretty sure we don't have any advertisers yet. I am the marketing director, and I'm afraid your noble little free podcast has come to an end. So we have ad revenue? Well, yes and no. What does that mean? It means I have ad revenue, and you do not. Do you know who you're talking to? I actually run this network. And I have the fine print of this very contract in my hand. And oh, I'm afraid your crew will find this podcast most unprofitable. Just leave. I have a show to finish. So while they're trying to find Zlarb, they run into Fiola, who is this novel's Jessa slash Princess Leia. She is an assistant auditor general for the corporate sector authority. She's trying to shut down the slave ring, and she manages to convince Han that they won't get paid unless he helps her get the slavers. Because that's what Han answers to, right? Like, you know, bottom line. They investigate and realize that a bunch of people who are high up in the authority are in the ring. At the same time, a skip tracer named Spray tries to repossess the Falcon. By the way, a skip tracer is somebody who collects debts in the Star Wars universe. Apparently, I had to go to Wikipedia for that one. Uh, Chewie doesn't let him have it, but for some reason, Spray stays along for the ride. And even though he could chuck Spray out of the Falcon easily, he doesn't because of reasons. The group takes down Zlarb and travels to Amund based off of information from the data plock. The plock tells him that this is where the slavers are connected to the shipping firm of a governing clan. The slavers, however, were watching Fiola. This makes it impossible for Han and Fiola to get back to the Falcon with Chewbacca, Blue Max, Bullocks, and Spray, so they get on a passenger liner. The Falcon had a bomb set when they were on Bonadon, unbeknownst to any of them. They make an emergency landing on Amund, but not before sending the droids to the spaceport to look for Solo. Han and Fiola's passenger liner gets hijacked because you need constant action, right? The slavers took the ship looking for the two. They escape to a lifeboat and they arrive on Amund. They meet and become friends with a house leader named Morglade, and after rescuing him from assassination by a man named Galandro, remember that name, it'll be sort of important in the next book if you don't fall asleep, Moore gives them the parts that they need to repair the Falcon, as well as permission to tool around the corporate sector. This despite the fact that, and I can't stress this enough, he blew up a prison. They find Chewbacca, make repairs to the Falcon, and then get attacked by slavers. Again. However, Galandro saves them in order to save his superior, Spray. Solo and Chewbacca are to be placed under arrest, you know, probably for exploding a prison. But they manage to escape to another jail cell, this time without dynamiting it. They kidnap an authority administrator, and in exchange for their freedom and payment, they are released. Okay, this is the last book, Han Solo and the Lost Legacy. We'll just breeze through this one. Solo and Chewbacca are in the process of throwing away the rest of their money they earned in the last story. They blew it through failed smuggling jobs, alcohol, massages, and wiring money to Nigerian prince. I kind of made up the last one. But I'm sure there's a Star Wars equivalent. It's probably wiring money to a Nabooan prince. They get a job for 1,500 credits on the university world. That's right, there's a college planet, which is called Rudrig. They run into an old friend and fellow smuggler, Alexander Dradur, who had saved them 
Badur was working on a not-so-legal mining camp on the planet of Dalalt. There he made friends with Hosti and Lanny Trojo. Lanny, who was a pilot, found a log recording disc from the Lost Queen of Ranroon. She believed that the ship had a treasure on it. A thousand years earlier, the queen and her warrior robots were lost with their ship's treasure heading towards a vault. Badur wants Han and Chewie to take him and a professor named Skanks back to Dalalt. Skanks was needed to translate the disc. Lonnie hid it in the lockbox at the vault before being murdered by mine operators. They are now searching for Badur and Hasty. At the time, Han is being stalked by Galandro because he's mad about how everything ended in the last book. At some point, he loses Galandro by dropping manure in his ship like he was Biff Tannen. They land on Dalalt, and the mine operators steal the Falcon because apparently this has to happen in every single book. They take it back to the mine to search for the disc. Han and company start hiking to the Falcon since there's not a vehicle in sight. They find a group of inbred humans, and yeah, they said they were inbred humans, which were called the Survivors. They, of course, kill anyone who finds them. Amazingly, they do not see the droid and worship him as a god. The Survivors do the opposite of their name, and Han suddenly realizes how to get to the treasure. They find the swimming people who are giant, muscular, seal-like aliens. They tow Han's group on a raft so that they can cover ground quicker. Of course, they're idiots who fight all the time because they're natives. And apparently, if you're native in Star Wars, you're either a cannibal, a warrior brute, or a warship droids and holograms. They eventually get the Falcon back, destroy a bunch of warrior droids, kill Galandro as well as the mine operators, yada yada yada. The treasure isn't worth very much, and since it's metal that's no longer used, it's kind of worthless to Han. So Han and Chewie decide to get a big score by running Spice for Jabba. And they live happily ever after until Han had bounty hunters trying to kill him for dropping Spice at the first sign of an Imperial cruiser because even he gets boarded from time to time. The end. Alright, so join me next week when we start talking about Return of the Jedi. We're going to do Act 1 and talk about how it was made. Not the credit. Let the hate flow through you. (laughs) Perhaps, though, you'd like to discuss merch sales. We have so many shows on the Not Safer Network. Download the entire first season of the show Not Afraid of the Star Wars fan base, but maybe it should be? Jedi Master's Degree. Two movies enter and only one movie leaves. Listen to Box Office Battle. Learn the history of television one show at a time with the podcast In Syndication. Music, anime, pop culture, movies, TV show, and the random babbling of two dudes who need to find something better to do. Check out A Feast of Geeks. The podcast that's perfectly described with its title, Movies with Wrestlers. And download the entire first season of the radio drama about a serial killer ripped from the pages of a hundred-year-old cookbook, A Thousand Ways to Please a Husband. <laughs>